recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Internet Radio. Today is Saturday, April 11th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. More specifically, this is what we call Christagania Saturdays. And here we shall be continuing our presentation of classical records and German origins. If you look for maps of Scythia on the Internet or in encyclopedias or library books, you will probably find it described as a large area situated to the north of the Black and Caspian Seas. Some maps depict it as coming down on the east around, one, around what was once ancient Parthia, which is now, for the most part, modern Iran, and into what are now parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. The west end of what is demarcated as Scythia on these maps reaches into the Ukraine where there is often a label that places Sarmatia in that area. Other maps depict Scythia as being centered just north of the Black Sea rather than further east. Often, the land known to the Romans as Germania Major is labeled as being adjacent to Scythia as the Romans put the border of Germany in ancient times to be at the Black Sea. Some of those maps put, put Sarmatia on the west of Scythia, and all of these maps are only a little bit true. And the parts that they all leave out cause more problems than they solve. These um, maps depict Scythia as the Romans understood Scythia. And these maps don't tell you. They lead you to believe that Germany or Germania was something that was always separate from Scythia. What we've seen in these last few presentations of this series is that to the Greeks, who described Scythia long before the Romans ever used the term Germania of any northern tribes, the Greeks used this term Scythia to describe Germany as well as that land north of the Black and Caspian Seas. It was all Scythia to them. Here we shall see, <clears throat> among other things, that the people called the Scythians by the Greeks were particular tribes of particular people, and it was they who had migrated from Asia into this European Scythia that the Romans had labeled Germania.
So when you look skiffier up on a map, you're not going to see what we're talking about of the Greek period from an older Greek perspective. You're only going to see what the maps, what the academics like to illustrate, which is Scythia as the later Romans saw it, because they had renamed or labeled the lands known as Germany and, and even Poland and Austria and Hungary and, and the rest of Central Europe today, they like to depict that as the Romans knew it as Germania. But the Greeks knew that land as Scythia. That, all the way back to the time of Herodotus, we have elaborated upon at great length here. Here from the classical historians, we have seen that the Scythians started out as a humble people on the frontiers of northern media and spread both east as far as India and Tibet and west into modern Germany to cover a large portion of the north throughout often inhospitable lands which were either sparsely inhabited or to a great degree uninhabited before their arrival. And it is even apparent that a lot of that land, just because the Scythians spread out along that great area, that doesn't mean that they inhabited all of that land. A lot of that land remained uninhabited for quite some time. The Scythians may have encompassed all of that land. They didn't inhabit every acre of it by far. Much of it was left uninhabited. The mapmakers call it all Scythia simply because nothing else was there. There is something... Well, well let me continue. I, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Herodotus described as Scythian rivers, the Danube, and all those rivers which feed it from the north, which is all of Central Europe. The later accounts of Strabo and Diodorus Siculus corroborate Herodotus, and furthermore, as we had seen at the end of our last presentation of this subject here, the medieval Welsh historians Nennius and Geoffrey of Monmouth both identified as Scythia, the land which is well known to us today, as Germany. And they had the, the Picts and the Saxons as coming not from Germany in their histories, but from Scythia. It's not that Nennius and Geoffrey of Monmouth were confused. They weren't confused at all. They knew Germany as Scythia, which the Romans before them would have called Germania Major, referring to the larger part of what they considered to be Germany that Rome never conquered. And there was an upper Germany and lower Germany along and west of the Rhine that were indeed under Roman rule. 
but Germania Major was not conquered by Rome. And Nennius and Geoffrey of Monmouth clearly considered that to be Scythia. There is something else which must be discussed here, which is not generally realized by most people who have never actually read these historians. And that is the nature of the writings of both Theodorus Siculus and Strabo, the geographer. And this is a good opportunity to discuss this because these two historians are very often quoted in papers at Christagenia.org. These men were not merely historians themselves, but they were processors and compilers of many of the historians and other writers who preceded them, most, not all, but most of whose works have since been lost. That is why Diodorus Siculus's great work, which consisted originally of 40 books, and many of those have even now been lost. That is why his work was called the Library of History. While Strabo is known to us from his surviving geography, he had also written histories, which are now lost. He was credited with having written a history of Assyria, which is now lost. But much of his geography contains short historical accounts of the various peoples in the places which he describes. When I first read the copy which I have of Strabo's geography, which is in eight of those small volumes which are published by Harvard University as the Loeb Classical Library, inside the front covers, I had made an informal list of the writers Strabo had mentioned in the portions of his work, which are in volumes 5, 6, and 7 of the Loeb Library. The lists reveal, as an example, that books 10 through 12, which are in Loeb Library volume 5, books 10 through 12 alone, of Strabo's geography contain citations from at least 60 writers of poetry, history, or philosophy, which were more ancient than himself. And most of those works we, that, that he had quoted are now lost. But some of them are not lost, and Strabo of course, wouldn't have been able to guess which of those works we would have, which of those works would be preserved to us 2,000 years after Strabo died. Strabo died 1,990 years ago. Those works that we do have which Strabo quoted from, as well as the works which Diodorus Siculus quoted from, which have been preserved to us separately, vindicate 
those writers as having made their citations accurately. So therefore, we should trust that they made all their citations accurately. Of course, there are many other ancient authors mentioned throughout the rest of Strabo's work. So the entire list is certainly much longer than perhaps 60. So these works which we cite most often in our historical essays and other papers at Christagenia from writers such as Diodorus Siculus or Strabo are cited because they are the works of learned men who honestly assessed what they believed to be the most accurate of ancient accounts and compiled them for us. That is indeed why these works have been valued through the centuries until last century. About a hundred years ago, historians in many academic institutions in the West began despising Theodorus Siculus and despising Strabo. And they've rewritten history around their own interpretations of archaeological findings and so-called science, which is really all a load of trash, because archaeology cannot rewrite what we understand about the history recorded by our own ancestors. The ancient people of our own culture. Archaeology should give us insight into what they wrote, but it can't rewrite what they wrote. You can't dig something out of the ground and imagine to be able to rewrite history from it. No, not at all. Now, to repeat and expound upon a portion of what we had presented near the end of part three of these presentations, where Strabo tells us of the earlier writers. Now, all of the peoples towards the north were by the ancient Greek historians giving, given the general name Scythian or Celto-Scythians, but the writers of still earlier times, making distinctions between them, called those who lived above the Euxine, which is the word for the Black Sea, and the Ister, or the Danube, and the Adriatic, Hyperboreans, Sarmatians, and Aramaspians, and they called those who lived across the Caspian Sea in part Sackins and in part Massagetans, or Massagete. But they were unable to give any accurate account of them, although they reported a war between Cyrus and the Massagete. And here Strabo is being critical of Ctesias, Herodotus, and Hellanicus. All three of those writers lived and wrote in the 5th century B.C. He's being critical of others as well, but they were all later. And we would assert that Strabo simply did not understand that these people that these writers started mentioning were just coming into Europe from Asia around those times. And Strabo's criticism is surely harsher than Herodotus deserves, whereas Strabo 
absolutely despised Hellenicus. And he says that in Book 13, Chapter 1 of his Geography. Strabo himself here confuses Hyperboreans by listing them along with historical people, such as the Nasegede, the Sake. And since he himself explains elsewhere that the name, <coughs> excuse me, the name Hyperboreans is a general description, meaning most northerly peoples. It's not the name of any specific tribe. In book one of his geography, he explains that the term Hyperborean simply means beyond the Boreas. The Boreas is the name which the Greeks gave to the north wind. In that place, in the first book of his geography, in chapter 3, paragraph 22, Strabo argues against Herodotus, and he concludes, however that may be, because Hyperborus, Herodotus, I'm sorry, Herodotus doubted the existence of any specific tribe named Hyperboreans. Strabo said, however that may be, this charge should be laid against Herodotus, that he assumed that by Hyperboreans, those peoples were meant in whose countries Boreas, the Greek name for the north wind, does not blow. For even if the poets do speak thusly, rather mythically of those, at least, who expound the poets should give ear to sound doctrine, namely, that by Hyperboreans were meant the most northerly peoples. In other words, Strabo's admitting that the name simply applies to the most northerly peoples known to the Greeks and not to any specific tribe. And he goes on to say, and as for limits, that of the northerly peoples is the North Pole, while that of the southerly peoples is the equator. And the winds, too, have the same limits. Strabo and the Greeks understood that the earth was a globe or a sphere, but didn't imagine that anybody dwelt south of the equator. So Strabo is only arguing hypothetically against Herodotus, that the term Hyperboreans applies to whoever it may have been who dwelt in the extreme north. While he is certainly not asserting that anyone actually lived at the North Pole. Then, after rebuking Herodotus for doubting whether they were actually Hyperboreans, and he's referring to the Histories, Book 4, chapter 13 and chapters 32 through 36, Strabo himself, in book 7, chapter 3 of his geography, calls the Hyperboreans mythical, refer revealing his own confusion on the matter. While in book 1, which we have just quoted, Strabo criticized Herodotus hypothetically in book seven of his geography. Strabo is more practical where he said, as for the southern part of Germany beyond the Albis, which is the Elbe River, 
the portion which is just contiguous to that river is occupied by the Suebi. Then immediately adjoining this is the land of the Gere, which, though narrow at first, stretching as it does along the Ister or the Danube on its southern side and on the opposite side along the mountainside of the Hercynian forest, for the land of the Gede also embraces a part of the mountains. Afterwards, it broadens out towards the north as far as the Tirgitahi, which is the name of the river, but I cannot tell the precise boundaries. It is because of men's ignorance of these regions that any heed has been given to those who create the mythical Ripahian mountains and Hyperboreans and also to all those false statements made by Pythias the Messalian regarding the country along the ocean, wherein he uses as a screen his scientific knowledge of astronomy and mathematics. So then, those men should be disregarded. In fact, if even Sophocles, when in his role as a tragic poet, he speaks of Orithia, tells how she was snatched up by Boreas, the name for the north wind, and carried over the whole sea to the ends of the earth and to the sources of night and to the unfoldings of heaven and to the ancient garden of Phoebus. His story can have no bearing on the present inquiry, but should be disregarded, just as it is disregarded by Socrates in the Phaedrus. But then let us confine our narrative to what we have learned from history, both ancient and modern. So here, Strabo asserts that there are no real Hyperboreans, a term which describes people living beyond the north winds, who were actually known to the Greeks, just as the phrase under the bear. Referring to the constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, which are in the northern sky, simply describes people living in the north and even around the Danube River. And while Strabo, in book one of his geography, had criticized Herodotus for being wrong hypothetically, here in book seven, he proved Herodotus to be right in substance. There were no particular people whose name was called Hyperboreans. I have presented this at length because there are certain critics of our Christian identity historical exposition who actually use the presumed existence of some historical Hyperboreans, although they are not described anywhere in any ancient writing in detail as a historical people to somehow refute our assertions concerning German origins. Some of our critics are so-called white nationalists who have accused me of having a non-standard view of history. We will not cede the idea that the Jews who have usurped 
all of Western academia hold the standard view of history. That's ridiculous. Those people who have never actually read any of these classical histories for themselves are even worse than the charlatans like Pythias the Messalian. In truth, the Christian identity view of history is the standard view of history. We have the citations. We have the ancient writers on our side. It's the Jews and all of Western academia who are promoting non-standard history. And those white nationalists who criticize things they've never read, they are in league with both the ancient charlatans and the Jewish academics who promote them. On the other hand, hopefully, as we proceed here, the links between the Celts, the Galatahi, the Germans, the Chimerians, and Scythians through the different stages of history as they started out in Asia and migrated into Europe are becoming quite apparent. But as we have just seen Strabo admit, we should not expect the ancient Greeks to fully understand the northern limits of these people. And Strabo says that they didn't. With this, we shall present our fourth essay in this series, Classical Records and German Origins, Part 4, with one minor digression about the Hyperboreans. Pythias, who Strabo considered a charlatan, wrote of Hyperboreans simply describing the people that he saw that, or that he imagined to dwell in the furthest north. That doesn't mean people lived on the North Pole. That doesn't mean there were huge populations of people in the north in Germany for any significant time before the time of Pythias. It doesn't mean any of those things at all. You cannot extrapolate the roots of Western civilization from the remarks of a single Greek poet who other Greek historians saw as a charlatan. You can't do it. That is absolute academic dishonesty. Look at Canada today. We could call the Canadians Hyperboreans. They're today's Hyperboreans. They live under the bears in the extreme north. Well, 90% of Canadians live within 30 miles of the northern border of the United States. So they don't live too far north. The ancient Greeks considered the people who lived along the Danube to lie under the bears, to be Hyperboreans. And it could be established historically and archaeologically that most of those people didn't live too far north of the Danube. Same difference. The existence of any people 
or any scant archaeological findings which might be associated with Hyperboreans is only absolute conjecture. Yes, there are archaeological findings. That doesn't mean that the entire German nation came from those people and that all of the historical records of the origins of the Germans can be dismissed. We don't rewrite history with archaeological findings that we really can't tell any accurate story about. Archaeology and the whims of the Jews and the desires of white nationalists for some great ancient Aryan homeland in the north aren't going to change the reality of the ancient historical records, which tell us very clearly over and over again that the Germanic peoples came from Asia and could ultimately be traced to Mesopotamia. We are going to proceed here from where we left off in part three of our original essay, where we presented Strabo's discussion of the usage by the writers before him of the term, terms Scythians, Celto-Scythians, Hyperboreans, Sarmatians, Aramaspians, Sakians, or Sakins, or Sake, and Mesagene found in Book 11 of his geography. We have already noted that the term Hyperborean was merely a descriptive term used of the peoples living in the remote north, and that there were no historical Hyperboreans. Nobody ever bore that name as a label for a nation or a tribe. It's only a descriptive term. Rather, at diverse times, that term as well as the phrase under the bears, was used to describe different people or even mythical non-existent people. And we pointed out that Strabo himself was at times confused and his writing somewhat conflicted because of this. Now it is appropriate to commence by discussing the other people Strabo had mentioned here, the Sarmatians, and the Aramaspians, and then the Scythians of Asia, before returning to a discussion of Europe. The Sarmatians, as Diodorus Siculus tells us, which we quoted at length in our last presentation of this series, were originally a people taken from the Medes, and therefore, from a Genesis 10 viewpoint, they are Gepetites and related to the other peoples who we would consider to be Slavs. And when we say that, we primarily mean the Thracians, the Maski, and the Tibarni, who in Genesis chapter 10, along with the Medes, are the Madai, Tyrus, Meshech, and Tubal of Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. The Sarmatians being said to have been settled along the Tanais River by the Scythians, Diodorus also later tells us 
that some writers reckon them as Scythians. And here we see that the lines are not very clearly drawn. Slavs and Germans in later times were, for the most part, divided by means of their language. And language is not a good determinant of tribal origin. Not at all. Strabo was among those writers who did so, sometimes considering the Sarmatians themselves to be Scythians. Where he said, on the right, as one sails into the Caspian Sea, are those Scythians or Sarmatians who live in a country contiguous to Europe between the Tanais River and the sea. The greater part of them are nomads of whom I have already spoken. And indeed, Strabo had said earlier that the Sarmatians, these two being Scythians, dwelt near the Caspian Sea, and our references are from book 11 of his geography, from chapters 2 and 6. Tacitus, the later Roman chronicler, he really wasn't a historian, he was more of an analyst or a chronicler. Tacitus distinguished the Sarmatians from the Germans, and specifically by physical appearance in the Germania, and we don't really know why, but there in chapter 46, he mentioned the repulsive appearance of the Sarmatians. By this time, the time of Tacitus, the Sarmatians had also migrated to the west of the Tanais, surely contributing to the westward movement of the Scythians into Europe, into Western Europe. The Aramaspians are mentioned by Diodor Siculus as a branch of the Scythians, yet little is found in the histories of the Scythians by the fourth century, it disappears from the historical records. Strabo only tells us of them that according to Aristeus, the ancient Greek poet, they are a one-eyed people. Strabo later called Aristeus, who wrote an epic about the Aramaspians, Strabo called him a charlatan if there ever was one. So, so obviously didn't go too highly about claim of one-eyed Aramaspians. Like the Romans, and even later, the Western European explorers, the ancient Greeks also sometimes invented fabulous stories about the people dwelling in distant lands. Frequently, however, those stories were propaganda intended to strike fear in the hearts of the people and uphold a reason for imperialism. And that's especially true in some of the Roman histories and accounts of the people outside of the borders of the Roman Empire. However obscure the Aramaspians are, much more is known of those Scythians of Asia whom Strabo had called the Eastern Scythians, also 
nomads who extended as far as the Eastern Sea and India. And they called those who lived across the Caspian Sea in part Sake and in part Masagene. But they were unable to give, speaking of the ancient historians, but they were unable to give any accurate account of them, although they reported a war between Cyrus and the Masagene. And that's in Geography, Book 11, Chapter 6. Here, Strabo refers to accounts such as the one related by Herodotus, Book 1, Chapters 201 through 216. And Herodotus tells us of Cyrus's campaign against the Scythians, which took place north of Media and across the Araxis River which flows through modern Turkey, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and northern Iran. The same place that Tibor Sikulis told us that the Scythians originated in. Early in his geography, Strabo states, indeed, the spread of the empires of the Romans and of the Parthians has presented to geographers of today, meaning his own time, of course, Strabo died about 25 AD, has presented to geographers of today a considerable addition to our empirical knowledge of geography, just as did the campaign of Alexander to geographers of earlier times as Eratosthenes points out. The Parthians have increased our knowledge in regard to Hyrcania and Bactriana, lands south and east of the Caspian Sea, and in regard to the Scythians who live north of Hyrcania and Bactriana, all of which countries were but imperfectly known to the earlier geographers. Yet Strabo, writing a geography, is often much more interested in the knowledge of the land and its features and resources than he is in the people, even though he was also a historian. And Herodotus' comments concerning the people of these regions generally concur with Strabo, who wrote over 400 years later. In his histories, Herodotus explained of his own methods that he felt it was his duty to report all that was told of him, even if he himself did not believe it. For that reason, his work is quite candid. While because of his philosophy, Herodotus did repeat some fantastic tales concerning the various tribes of the Scythians. Much of the information he had is of great historical value once it is separated from the myths, myths such as the one-eyed Aramaspians. For instance, Herodotus describes in detail one tribe, the Budini, and he says that they are a large and powerful nation. They have all deep blue eyes and bright red hair and live near the Baristanes, which is the modern Dnieper River. 
also of great value is his enumeration of men from various Scythian tribes along who were among the Persian army of Xerxes, the army which invaded Greece around 480 BC, and which is corroborated by the Persian account of the army of Xerxes is attested to in Persian inscriptions that Herodotus never had a clue we would be able to read 2,500 years after he wrote his book. Never had a clue. And there it is evident that many of the Scythian tribes and nations of the East were at that time subject to the Persians. Discussing the army of Xerxes, Herodotus often used the term Sake or Sakins in place of the term Scythian. That Scythians were subject to the Persians is also evident in the list of the satrapies of the Persian Empire, which Herodotus had also provided in Book 3 of his histories. The Bactrian tribes are listed as the 12th Persian satrapy, and the Sakins and Caspians together in the 15th, with Parthians, Chorasmians, Sardians, and Arians making up the 16th satrapy. By this it may be evident, with the Scythians of Europe also being identified as Sake, for instance in chapter, I'm sorry, Book 7, Chapter 3, Paragraph 9 of Strabo's Geography, that these tribes didn't simply migrate, not in not in complete portions, but that they had multiplied and spread out and migrated in fragments while other fragments stayed behind. Strabo was citing the 4th century B.C. Greek historian Ephorus of Cume, who in turn was citing the 5th century B.C. epic poet Corliss of Samos, who, in a work entitled The Crossing of the Pontoon Bridge, the title referring to a bridge which was constructed by Darius, the king of Persia, in his campaign against the Scythians and Thracians. We had stated earlier in this series that the Persians encircled the Black Sea in order to conquer the Scythians and Thracians living north of Greece in the 5th century BC so that they could cut off the lumber supply to the Greeks. Corlos of Samos said, or I'm sorry, described the sheep-tending sake of Scythian stock, but they used to live in wheat-producing Asia. However, they were colonists from the nomads, law-abiding people. Reading this, it cannot be forgotten that the sake of the Persian inscriptions were indeed the Bithumri, or Chimerians, of the Assyrian inscriptions. So the sake of Europe 
clearly came from Asia. That was accepted from the 5th century B.C. all the way down to the 1st. Some of the tales which Herodotus repeated concerning various Scythian tribes are found in other Greek writers. For instance, Herodotus mentions a tribe called the Androphagi, or man-eaters, and Strabo relates the same tales of cannibalism among certain Scythians, repeating earlier writers. Among other things, Strabo mentioned the ferocity of the Scythians in that they sacrificed strangers, ate their flesh, and used their skulls as drinking cups. Elsewhere, Herodotus says of the Tauri, the name which the Greeks gave to the Scythians of the Crimea and neighboring Black Sea coasts, that they sacrificed the shipwrecked and other foreigners found in their territory. For this, the Tauri were the subjects of a play by Euripides, in which they appear quite anachronistically at the time of the Trojan War, being parodied in his Iphigenia among the Taurians as the sacrificers of those unfortunate enough to have fallen upon their shores. Herodotus also described other tribes of Scythians who had settled in one place and were engaged in husbandry, referring to the Scythian husbandmen who dwelt about the Bristonese and those of the Boudini who had mixed with certain Greeks and inhabited a city called Delanus. They, and many others of the Scythian tribes of Asia, such as the Caspians, Bactrians, Sardians, certainly also must have been settled due to the nature of their circumstances being under the Persian yoke. Such would require the payment of tribute to Persia in money and goods from trade and husbandry and agriculture. It's evident to us that the Scythians were seen as a threat to the Greeks, so they started to invent marvelous tales of their inhumane character to strike fear of the Scythians in the hearts of Greeks, so that the Greeks, the time coming, would all the more zealously defend their lands against the Scythians. Scythian archers were used by the Athenians as city policemen. Theodore Siculus relates that the Scythians known as the Sake had dwelt to the north of India. Theodorus had written it in that place. Now, India is four-sided in shape, and the side which faces east and that which faces west, I'm sorry, south, are embraced by the great sea while that which faces north is separated by the Emotus range of mountains from that part of Scythia which is inhabited by the Scythians known as the Sake. And the fourth side, which is turned towards the west, is marked off by the river known as Indus, which is the largest of all streams after the Nile. Very close to this region, bodies of Caucasians with reddish hair and clad in tartan-like garments have recently been found, called the Tarim mummies. They're not really mummies. They're actually bodies that were well-preserved in a very dry climate. 
and they date to within a few centuries of the start of the Christian era, the same time that the classical Greek historians cited here were writing. Diodorus Siculus tells us that these Scythians originated along the Araxis River, northwest of Media, in a passage we have already cited at length in part three of this series. Strabo informs us that the Scythians north of Hyrcania and in Bactriana, which is very close to this same region, and which corresponds roughly with present-day Tajikistan, are known to the West from the Parthians, and in his 11th book, he discussed them at great length. There, Strabo had written, now the greater part of the Scythians, beginning at the Caspian Sea, are called Deahi. But those who are situated more to the east than these are named Masagete and Sake, whereas all the rest are given the general name of Scythians. Later he says that the Deahi are not considered Scythians by all. And indeed, Herodotus thought they were a Persian tribe. In part three of this series of essays, we had associated them with the Dahi, as Strabo calls them, or Dihi, as Thucydides called them, of Europe, from which the later Roman province of Dacia was named. And that's an identification which Strabo himself refused to make. Strabo tells us that some of the Deahi are called Aparni, and he has these among the number of the Scythians, led by Arsakas, who established themselves as the Parthians. And the Parthians were indeed a tribe of the Scythians. Strabo wrote in his geography, in Book 11, Chapter 9, Paragraph 2. But when revolutions were attempted by the countries outside the Taurus, because of the fact that the kings of Syria and Media, who were in possession also of these countries, were busily engaged with others, those who had been entrusted with their government first caused the revolt of Bactriana and of all the country near it. I mean, Euthydemus and his followers, and then Arsakes, a Scythian, with some of the Deahi. And then he says in, in the parenthetical statement, I mean the Aponians, as they were called, nomads who lived beyond the Oxus, invaded Parthia and conquered it. Now, at the outset, Arsakes was weak, being continually at war with those who had been deprived by him of their territory, both he himself and his successors. But later, they grew so strong, always taking the neighboring territory through successes in war, that finally they established themselves as lords of the whole of the country inside the Euphrates. And they also took a part of Bactriana, having forced the Scythians, and still earlier, Eucratides and his followers, to yield to them. And at the present time, they rule over so much land and so many tribes, 
that in the size of their empire, they have become, in a way, rivals of the Romans, and of course the Parthians were. The cause of this is their mode of life, and also their customs, which contain much that is barbarian and Scythian in character, though more that is conducive to hegemony and success in war. However, rather than having conquered Parthia, as Strabo put it, we would assert that our Sakas and his fellow tribesmen conquered the land that then became known as Parthia. In the same book, Strabo also describes a tribe called the Sagini, who dwelt in the mountains near the Caspian Sea, and who imitate the Persians in all their customs, except that they use ponies that are small and shaggy, which, though unable to carry a horseman, are yoked together in a four-horse team. That's in Book 11, Chapter 11. And this description matches perfectly the description of the Seginahi. Here we have Segini. In Herodotus, we have Seginahi. The Seginahi of Herodotus, who dwelt north of the Danube, in his time, who he said were the only people he knew living north of the Danube, and whom he had said were colonists of the Medes, as they themselves had asserted, although Herodotus could not imagine that to be true. Therefore, these two groups Strabo's Sigini, and Herodotus's Siginahi, who he also said had horses that were short and shaggy-haired and too small to carry a man, must have originally been from the same tribe, some having migrated westward at an early time while others remained in Asia. Note that often among the Greeks, the word Mede stood for either Persian or Mede, especially among the tragic poets who were contemporary with Herodotus. With the conquest of Alexander the Great, <clears throat> the Greeks had conquered all of the old Persian Empire as far as Bactriana, which bordered upon India and was inhabited by Scythians. And Strabo explained that each of the Scythian tribes had a name of its own, though they were generally known as Scythians. And Strabo says that they are all, for the most part, nomads, where in that statement it is evident that Scythian identifies a race of men who were nomads. Scythian is not merely a synonym for nomad, and many more modern academics insist that it is. But Strabo clearly identified the Scythians as a race and said that they were mostly nomads. So Scythian cannot be a synonym for nomad. Not at all. Of Bactria, Strabo then says, but the best known of the nomads are those who took away Bactriana from the Greeks. I mean, the Aesi, 
Passiani, Tokari, from which we get Tokarians, and Saccharali, and there's that Sake name once again, who originally came from the country on the other side of the Yucatas River, which is the modern Daria, that adjoins that of the Sake and the Sogdiani and was occupied by the Sake. The Terran mummies have been thought by many archaeologists to be of Tocharian or related stock. Even tribes east of Sogdiana, where the Terran basin is located, are identified as Scythian. And Strabo says that they're identified as Scythian from their identity in kind. Strabo's geography Book 11, Chapter 11, Paragraph 6. Of the Sake and the Masagete, the largest Scythian tribes of the East, who lived across, meaning east of, the Caspian Sea, Strabo said that they are one tribe or one nation, meaning the Greek word ethnos, and he named several divisions among them. And that's in Geography, Book 11, Chapter 8. Stabo errantly supposed that the Sacasene, the Sake of Sacasene, which was a district of Armenia, which had its name from the Sake and is in that exact spot where Diodorus Siculus says that the Sake originated. Strabo ever supposed that the Sake of Sacasene had migrated there from Asia, as if the Scythians originated in the Far East. Strabo has written in Book 11 of his geography that the Sake, however, made raids like those of the Cimmerians and Treres, some in the regions close to their own country, others in the regions farther away. For instance, they occupied Bactriana and acquired possession of the best land in Armenia, that's the district known as Sacasene, which they left named after themselves, Sacasene. And they advanced as far as the country of the Cappadocians, which would be eastern central Anatolia, particularly those situated close to the Euxene, who are now called the Pontici, and the Euxene is the word for the Black Sea, and Pontici is after the word Pontus, which is the Greek word for sea. From Diodorus Siculus, we have seen that the Scythians originated near Sacasene which is not far from the Araxes River. Theodorus' version, version of Scythian origins is better corroborated by the general historical record that Strabo himself helps to attest even if he didn't realize it. While Strabo tells us that the Scythians ruled all of Asia for a time after the fall of Assyria, 
I'm sorry, Herodotus tells us that. And that's in Herodotus's Histories. Book 1, chapter 104, that the Scythians ruled all of Asia after the fall of Assyria. And I believe he sets the number at 28 years for their rule. Strabo, rather anachronistically, identifies this same period by saying that greater Armenia, he's using the term Armenia rather anachronistically, that greater Armenia ruled the whole of Asia, and that's in Geography Book 11, meaning the Scythians or the Sakae of Sakasene. Strabo had written that in ancient times, greater Armenia ruled the whole of Asia after it broke up the empire of the Syrians. And that's a common mistake in a lot of ancient Greek writings where Syrian and Assyrian were confused. They were confused here by Strabo. It was the Scythians who broke up the empire of the Assyrians at the fall of Nineveh. They had help from the Persians and the Babylonians and the Medes. But Strabo is attributing that to greater Armenia. And Strabo knew the difference between an Armenian and a Mede. Strabo goes on to say, but later, in the time of Astyages, who was the last king of the Medes, it was deprived by that great authority, of that great authority by Cyrus and the Persians. Although it continued to preserve much of its, its ancient dignity, and Ecbatana was winter, possibly a, a mistake for royal, residence for the Persian kings, and likewise for the Macedonians, who, after overthrowing the Persians, occupied Syria, and still today it affords the kings of the Parthians the same advantages and security. This area where Sakasani was located is the same area where Cyrus, not 100 years after the fall of Assyria, crossed the Araxis River into what later became known as Armenia to attack those Scythians called the Massagetae. Strabo tells us that the Parthians were a division of the Scythians. The attestation of Josephus that the Parthians and the other tribes of the upper barbarians were of his own nation where he means the ethnic sense. And for that reason, he wrote his Wars of the Judeans for these people, as he says in the preface to the book, Wars of the Judeans. Josephus agrees with Theodorus Siculus, who gives the origin of these people as northern media. We have a clear line in the ancient histories, where, whereby we can connect the people of the same nation as Josephus to the Parthians and the other tribes of the upper barbarians, who he says were of his own nation. Josephus knew that these people were 
the dispersed Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. And that agrees with Theodorus Siculus, who says that the origin of these people is near northern Media, along the Araxis River, which agrees with the biblical, biblical accounts of the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites and to where they had been removed many centuries before this, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. This connection between the Scythians, Chimerians, and the Israelites is described at length by E. Raymond Cat and his missing links discovered in Assyrian tablets. Our own research is independent of E. Raymond Cat. If um, one wanted it be of, of another lengthy academic work which explains all of this, that would be the book. It is fully evident Given all that Strabo and Diodorus Siculus have to say about the Scythians, that they were a common race, and Diodorus Siculus tells us that they came from a single origin, Strabo supports this statement of Diodorus's, not where he agrees with their point of origin, but where he tells us that the Scythians of the East are indeed Scythians, because of their identity in kind. And also, where he tells us that the Sake and the Masagete are one tribe, using the word ethnos. And also where he states that the Iberians above the Caucasus Mountains are both neighbors and kinsmen of the Scythians. Although here he includes also the Sarmatians, whom he supposes to be Scythians. He calls the Iberians above the Caucasus Mountains neighbors and kinsmen of the Scythians in Book 11, Chapter 3, Paragraph 3 of his geography. With the testimony of Josephus we have just mentioned, we can once again see that the Scythians were the ancient Israelites, the Hebrews of the Assyrian deportations. In Hebrew, the Hebrew word, the word Hebrew is Ebri. That's the Hebrew word for Hebrew. Ebri. I-B-R-I-Y is the way James Strong transliterates it in his concordance. Once it is realized that the Phoenicians, who settled the Iberian Peninsula in Western Europe, were Israelites, and we have papers at Christogenia explaining that, and that for that reason, Iberia was named Iberia, then it is also evident that this Iberia in the Caucasus Mountains near the Black Sea, received its name in like manner, because Hebrews resided there, being the Scythians, or Sake, or the Iberians, who were neighbors and kinsmen of the Scythians, or Sake, according to Strabo. The word Iberia comes from a Hebrew word, which signifies a crossing over, or 
the region on the other side of something. That's what Iberia is used to describe. Of the Iberian Peninsula in the West, Iberia is called Iberia because it's the land on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Of the Iberia, north of the Caucasus Mountains, which is on many ancient maps today and many reproductions of ancient maps of, of, of the Roman and earlier periods. You'll see in Iberia, just north of the Caucasus Mountains, it's called Iberia because it's the land on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains. Both Iberias were named after the Hebrews that dwelt there, neighbors and kinsmen of the Scythians. Herodotus' description of the Scythian tribe of the Budini, which we have cited above, with their bright hair, bright red hair, and blue eyes, surely portrays the ideal model of Celtic appearance that is commonly perceived today. Indeed, centuries later, Tacitus wrote of the Caledonians in Britain, and he said, the reddish hair and large limbs of the Caledonians proclaims a German origin. That's in the Agricola, paragraph 11. Aside from the tartan-clad tarim mummies found in what is now northwestern China, there are many other archaeological finds in Asia which help to support the classical historians cited here in their accounts of the Scythians. For instance, the so-called Peziric culture describes the archaeological findings of the elaborate barrow graves of the people who once inhabited the Altai Mountains of western Mongolia. Said to be similar to the Scythian tombs of what is now the Ukraine, descriptions of these tombs are also much like Herodotus had reported in the burials of Scythian chieftains. Herodotus described the burials of Scythian chieftains in the histories in Book 4, chapters 71 and 72. Some of Herodotus's account may be exaggerated, since while horses and concubines, who were described as sacrificed, have been found in the graves of Scythian chieftains, nowhere near as many as 50 horses or 50 concubines, which Herodotus reported as being buried all at once, nowhere near that number have been found by archaeologists yet, we'll say yet. The Peziric tombs which are dated to the 5th and 4th centuries B.C., which was the very time of Herodotus, contain a race of Caucasian people heavily tattooed and with blonde hair, who would certainly not be out of place in Germany or Scandinavia today. 
Found among these burials are tile carpets, elaborate chariots, gold and gold gilt objects of art, embroidered woven fabrics, carved leather goods, and many other crafts. Similar burials have been found in Tuva, a Russian district north of Mongolia in modern Kazakhstan. One very interesting, interestingly named one is the Isik Barrow, I-S-S-Y-K. And elsewhere, these things have been found, in addition to the many Scythian barrows found in the West, such as those in Ukraine. The identity of the Scythians in the West and the Scythians in the East by the Greek writers saying that they were the same people by their identity in kind is fully supported in the archaeological findings. Of course, there are many archaeological findings associated with so-called Indo-Europeans, which is just another term for Caucasian or white people in and around the Eurasian texts. which predate the Scythians. And many historians and archaeologists errantly assume that the steppes, or some area to the east, or to the west, or to the north, anywhere but land to the Bible, must have been the original home of all Indo-Europeans. There sometimes seems to be at least as many theories of Indo-European origins as there are scholars holding advanced degrees in disciplines related to the subject. If you look at um, J.P. Mallory, it's a paperback book. It's pretty readily available. I think it was published in the 80s. I read it maybe 15 years ago. J.P. Mallory's In Search of the Indo-Europeans. Look at that book. Find it in the library. Maybe you'll find a PDF online. I don't know. You look at that book, and you look at maps that he has, which describe what various anthropologists and archaeologists claim to be the original Indo-European homeland. And there's a couple of dozen theories, all pointing to a different place in Europe. And just about every area of Europe and Eurasia are covered by the various theories on Indo-European, on some original mythical Indo-European homeland. None of them pick the lands of the Bible. None of them imagine that it could be Mesopotamia or Syria, or Palestine. Yet all of the roads of our cultural and historical consciousness, when we really examine the origins of Greek and Roman paganism, the origins of Phoenician paganism, of Germanic paganism, compare them to the myths of Mesopotamia and the accounts in the Hebrew scriptures. All 
of the roads of our cultural and historical consciousness lead back to the world portrayed by the Bible, to Egypt, to the Levant, to Anatolia, and the Mesopotamia. Once both political correctness and the lies of the Jews concerning the Shemitic race are swept aside, because Arabs and Jews are not Shemites any more than they all speak English today and they're not Englishmen. Once those lies are swept aside and biblical history is examined from a racially correct perspective, the conclusion that white culture and history began in and around Mesopotamia is not difficult to reach. It can certainly be demonstrated from the Bible, from apocryphal Hebrew literature, from the Hebrew language itself, and many other ancient historical works that the original Semites, not today's race-mixed Jews and Arabs, the original Semites were white, and they were primarily the ancestors of many of today's, of even most of today's white Europeans. Following the more accurate Septuagint chronology of the Bible, it's not perfect, it's more accurate than the, than the Masoretic text. The Adamic race, the race of the descendants of Noah, appeared on earth at least but probably not too much longer than 7,500 years ago. However, other Caucasoid races most likely had been here long before that, and modern civilization, which in our estimation is that civilization which began with Genesis chapter 10, began following a great but localized flood which took place perhaps 5,200 or so years ago. From that time, white Adamic civilization, European, Western civilization, spread for over 2,500 years up to the deportations of the Israelites by Assyria and the subsequent appearance of the Scythians in history, which began about 741 B.C. Outside of the few records which we have from Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia, scarcely anything exists to tell us of those 2,500 years between this great flood and the end of the old kingdom of Israel. There were tribes, Adamic, Genesis 10 tribes, tribes named by the Bible in Europe, the Thracians, the Ionians, for 2,500 years before the end of the old kingdom of Israel. And there's no writing that exists to tell us anything that any of those tribes did. That would include the Ionians, the Thracians, the Lydians, who were also the Etruscans, the Tar people of Tarsus in southern Spain, the Rhodians, 
and all of their colonies, nothing exists of all those people and all their writing, all of their history. There is no writing at all, even though they were ostensibly in southern Europe for 2,500 years before the end of the ancient kingdom of Israel in 741 to 676 B.C. Outside of the few records we have from the east and from Mesopotamia and Egypt, scarcely anything exists to tell us of white history during 2,500 years, or anything before that. Nothing. Comparatively, the ancient Greeks began writing after 700 B.C., from the time of Homer. It cannot be assumed that over 2,500 years that all of the other branches of the white race remained confined to the world of the Bible to the Mediterranean, and to the Near East. As the historic records and inscriptions tell us, the lands of Cush, Asher, Madai, Elam, Sumer, Assyria, Media, and Persia, and the surrounding related nations were quite often in a state of war or ruled over by tyrants during this 2,500-year period. Surely, over the centuries, many of the tribes of the people migrated to regions north, east, and west, and not only to escape war or tyranny, but also in search of fertile land, precious minerals, or other natural resources. And there are many archaeological discoveries in and around the steppes which predate the historic Scythians. Among these are the Andronovo, the catacomb, the tumulus, the timber grave, the corded ware, the urn field, and many other Indo-European cultures of Eastern Europe and Western Asia, many of which have features linking them to the early cultures of Mesopotamia or the adjoining regions of Anatolia, Syro-Palestine, or Iran. This has been demonstrated by at least one professional archaeologist, S.A. Grigoriev, of the Ural branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences in his book, Ancient Indo-Europeans, an Attempt of Historical Reconstruction. Grigoriev has no axe to grind. He is an archaeologist who has studied the works of several linguists and through archaeological demonstrations of archaeological artifacts and, and findings and combined with linguistics, he has pieced together an origin of Indo-Europeans in Mesopotamia, which we would claim to be maybe not entirely historically accurate, but certainly demonstrative of our own Christian identity claims. Grigoriev is not a historian. Like, like many other archaeologists, 
he imagines that archaeological findings can more or less rewrite history. You cannot write history from archaeological findings. We refute that idea. But his reconstruction through archaeology of Indo-European origins because of the progression and similarity of communities which were created in ancient times and because of the determinable progression of Indo-European languages is very agreeable to Christian identity. So there are archaeologists who would support, at least in part, our contentions concerning the origins of the white race. We are not, therefore, disputing all archaeologists, but most archaeologists who attempt to rewrite history from archaeology have an agenda of their own. In an article online, the Sintasha culture and some questions of Indo-European origins, Grigoriev makes the following comments, and his English is imperfect. He's a Russian writing in English as a second language, perhaps. He says, origins of Indo-Europeans is one of the most significant problems of history, archaeology, and linguistics. Well, we don't we in Christian identity don't find it a problem at all if people would simply believe the ancient historical accounts and they don't. They want to reargue them because those ancient historical accounts don't agree with certain political agendas, especially the political agendas of the Jews for which reason Christian identity and the classical histories which we uphold are marginalized in Jewish academics. Origins of Indo-Europeans, quoting Grigoriev, is one of the most significant problems of history, archaeology, and linguistics. This problem has already been discussed for 200 years after the kinship of Indo-European languages was demonstrated. Linguists, T.V. Gamkrelidze, and that's how I'm going to pronounce his name. It's sort of difficult. Gam Krelidze and V.V. Ivanov, basing analyses of Indo-European languages, have localized the Indo-European homeland in the Near East and described migrations of separate groups. My study, meaning Gregoriev's study, my study of Eurasian cultures allows me to say that Indo-European homeland was really in the Near East. V.I. Sarianidi has demonstrated that the appearance of, of Iranians in Central Asia and Eastern Iran and forming 
of Bactria Margiana archaeological complex had been caused by migration from the Syro and Italian region. Another important problem of Indo-European study is migration of ancient Europeans. Gam, Kraliza, and Ivanov consider that their languages differentiated already in the Near East. These people, Celts, Germans, Slavs, and Balts, moved to Europe through Iran and Central Asia around the Caspian Sea. As a result of combined migrations, an area of the second intimacy of these dialects formed somewhere to the north of the Caspian Sea. This linguistic reconstruction corresponded to archaeological evidence. The Indo-European homeland was placed on the territory of Kurdistan. The most early complexes which we can connect with Proto-Indo-Europeans are such objects as Tel Magzalia. Tel means a hill, and, and under a lot of those hills are anciently buried cities, cities buried in sand and debris. Tel Magzalia, Tel Soto, Hasuna, dating from the 8th to the early 5th millenniums BC. Now, of course, most of that dating is based on how archaeologists imagine sediment and debris layers to have formed over time. And that's highly inaccurate. And it's also based on carbon dating, which at that length of time is also highly inaccurate. And we get problems with that reason with Grigoriev's dates. But we don't have problems with his schematic for the origins of certain people. So we'll continue. Dating... To the, from the 8th to the early 5th millenniums BC, the first Indo-Europeans migrated to the Balkan Peninsula after and together with other Anatolian peoples at about the end of the 6th millennium BC. So he's saying about 5,000 BC. We would argue with that by about 2,000 years, but that's fine. It really doesn't matter for our point here. The Anatolian tribes were formed here on this base, but most part of Indo-European migrations began later, at about the early 4th millennium, at the end of the Bronze Age. Cimmerians migrated westwards to northern Pontic area. Scythian migration through Iran, Near East and the Caucasus took place at the beginning of the Iron Age. At last, various streams of Indo-Europeans, Tartarians, Europeans, and Iranians influenced forming and development of Chinese civilization. And we would completely agree that it was the Scythians who introduced civilization to the yellow squat monsters of the East, and most likely race mixed with them and 
drove themselves to oblivion in their fornication. The Bronze Age ran to about 1200 B.C. in the Near East and 600 B.C. in Europe. Those dates are very subjective. The Iron Age is said to begin about 1200 B.C. in the Near East and Europe. We can't entirely agree with Gregoriev, who improperly labels the earliest migrations of Caucasians into Europe as Celts and Germans. We would reserve those names for later migrations of the Scythians and Cimmerians into Europe, and who, perhaps in deference to all those who have followed Homer, distinguishes Cimmerians from Scythians and errantly labels earlier northern groups as Cimmerian when in fact the Cimmerians were Scythians and did not reach Europe until the second half of the 7th century BC, not back in 1200 BC. And these things we have already discussed at length in part one of this series of presentations. Elsewhere, Grigoriev further supports the historic record as it is presented in these essays, where he states that cultures of Scythian and Sarmatian world were not forming on the basis of late Bronze Age cultures placed from the Dnieper to the Alte. When he says that, he means that the Scythians and the Sarmatians didn't descend from the people who preceded them in those areas. Rather, they moved in later on those people. Because further discussing the steppe culture, he adds, the forming of these peoples from the 18th century BC reflect an ironization of the steppe zone, which is fine. There very well may have been other Persians preceding the Scythians into the steppe. And that's what he's saying. He's not saying that the forming of Scythian and Sarmatian cultures are from the 18th century BC. He's saying that the forming of the steppe cultures reflected people as early as the 18th century BC moving from what is now Iran up into the steppe. And then he says, although the appearance of Scythian and Sarmatian tribes was not connected with these cultures, and we would certainly agree, because in support of Diodorus Siculus's testimony concerning these peoples, the Scythians and Sarmatians appear in the steppe from what we would consider Iran, ancient Meteor and Persia, after the Bronze Age, in the early Iron Age. Now, although some sources place that as early as the 12th century BC, in others it's said not to begin until after the start of the first millennium. The dates, Bronze Age, Iron Age, they're very subjective. And in Europe, it didn't start till the 8th century BC, the same century during which the Israelites were being deported by Assyria. Kurdistan, is a region which includes the bordering parts of modern Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Armenia. It includes 
the original homeland of the patriarch Abraham in Haran, which in the Bible is that area mentioned as Padan Aram in the book of Genesis. So Grigoriev is telling us the original Indo-European homeland is in Kurdistan, and the Bible tells us that that was the original homeland of the patriarch Abraham, which was located in what later became known as ancient media and parts of Assyria and Persia. Babylonia, or the ancient lands of Sumer and Akkad, lay just to the south of Kurdistan. While Grigoriev's conclusions were reached solely through the studies of archaeology, linguistics, and some history, it should be evident that this is one archaeological model for the spread of so-called Indo-Europeans, which agrees very closely with the proper biblical perspective and the testimony of the classical historians concerning the origin of the white nations of Europe and Asia. In the next part of this essay, we shall return our attention to the Scythians of Europe. Yahweh willing, that will be in two weeks. Next Friday on Christogenia Internet Radio, we're going to leave the topic open. I don't know what I want to discuss yet. We will be on the road. We will be in Naples, Florida for a week from Monday. So we will have a program we don't know yet what it will be. Next Saturday, we hope to have a discussion with Brett Light from Australia, who is, um, whose website is expelltheparasite.com and who also writes for the Daily Stormer. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.